everyone. Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. And uh, today we're going to talk about a lot of things. Our first guest is none other than herself, Miss Peggy Nash, which is exciting. And second, we're having uh, the Ontario Parent Network on. Um, and we're going to talk to them about the situation in our schools across the province. But first, I'm so excited to have Peggy on, the other West End gal from the days of New York politics. Peggy, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Well, very happy to be here. Great to see you, Sherry. Uh, so if you don't know who Peggy Nash is, well, yeah, let me just inform you a little bit out there. First of all, she's an Order of Canada recipient. She was the MP for Parkdale High Park for many years. And now she is a senior advisor at Ryerson University. So really quite qualified to speak about a number of things. But, but first, I just wanted to ask you, Peggy, what's life after politics like for you? <laughs> Well, it's, it's a big change. I have uh, a little more time to be able to enjoy things, enjoy my family, my friends. Um, I, I do miss it. I loved being able to represent my community. I love the work in the community. I, I love being in Ottawa, although not many people are in Ottawa these days. Um, but, you know, it's great to have people, new people come in. And so um, even if I hadn't uh, been defeated when I was, I think it was probably time for a new person to, to represent the area anyway. Um, but for me, you know, you're, you're running a thousand kilometers an hour when you're in politics. You, you're constantly, constantly moving. Things are coming at you very quickly. And then when you leave, for me at least, I felt like I hit a brick wall. It was suddenly nothing. It was, um, I guess, like anybody who's been laid off, you're suddenly out of a job. Um, but the way I coped with it was to just keep really busy. So connecting with friends, I started volunteering. I had done a lot of election observation in the past, so I... Um, observed elections around the world. I did some work training women in politics in different countries around the world. Um, most of it volunteer work. I really enjoyed it. Um, and then um, I went back to school. I did a master's degree. I uh, did some other education, got some other certifications. But um, I approached Ryerson looking uh, to see if there was a way to, to plug in through them. And um, so I do a couple of things at Ryerson. I work on labor relations for the Ted Rogers School. And that's interesting. I chair an advisory board and um, invite in guest speakers and um, do training in their education programs there. And then for the Faculty of Arts, um, working with a faculty member there, Dr. Tracy Rainey, we've created a Women in the House program. Uh, some universities have a Women in the House program where they just take students to Ottawa to shadow MPs, but we actually have a course where they get a good grounding in Canadian politics, in intersectionality, in the challenges uh, for diverse voices getting uh, into politics. 
And then we do a shadowing program as well. So I absolutely love that. And um, I don't know. I, I seem to have lots going on. I do some bargaining. I was a negotiator before I was elected. So every so often I'll do some collective bargaining. I'll do some speaking, do some media. It's, it's, it feels like it's quite busy and um, I'm enjoying myself. It sounds like it. Uh, speaking to, here to Peggy Nash, uh, former MP, and as you've just heard, uh, doing a little bit of everything else uh, as senior advisor at Ryerson these days. Uh, and by the way, out there in listener land, uh, please, you know, always happy to get your comments and questions. And of course, if you're listening on the radio, shout out to CIUT 89.5 FM, the only alternative radio station left in Toronto. Uh, and if you're listening iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you get podcasts, uh, welcome to too. I always respond to your questions and comments. Um, so Peggy, I asked you, uh, you know, what it's like to be, you know, post-politics, PP. Um, what, and you told me, you know, what, what don't you miss about politics? Oh, what don't I miss? Um, I don't miss having just about every minute of the waking day booked to do something, uh, I get I get time to breathe, so I don't miss the the hectic nature. Although I am someone who likes to keep busy, uh, it, it was maybe a little too much sometimes. What don't I miss? I don't miss the um, some of the nastiness. Uh, you know, I'm somebody who will fight hard on an issue. And I'm not afraid of confrontation. I, I believe passionately in progressive change. And I respect people who believe passionately in, in other ideas. Let's debate. Let's, let's have a discussion. But there is a level of, um, of uh, just nastiness that um, can be quite unhealthy and dangerous for uh, some some people in public life, um, uh, you know, racialized uh, politicians, uh, trans politicians, people who, you know, are are seen as interlopers in a very traditional, um, stereotypically white masculine space. And uh, I mean, they were they've been described in one book as space invaders. Um, and and it's it's kind of true. You're seen as a, a as an invader in non-traditional space. So, uh, and you know, social media has just intensified that. So, um, I I present that as a reality, but I never present it as a deterrent because I think the the way to push back against this negativity is just to elect more diverse voices. And that's something I feel very strongly about. Speaking, um, as you know, to Peggy Nash, uh, here on the Radical Reverend Show. Uh, so let's talk about a couple of things that are happening in Ontario right now. And one was the budget that just came out. And I saw you giving a few, you know, insightful comments on CP24. Um, what about the Ontario budget that we just saw released? Um, I, I mean, I'll just throw this one comment out. Um, the one thing I did like about it was uh, that he gave a shout out to, to Andrea and to the opposition leaders. I've never heard that before from a finance minister. So that was kind of a nice diversion. What did you think about the whole thing? 
Well, you know, I mentioned that. And he, he also got choked up when he talked about his family. And, you know, he sounds like someone who never expected to be in that kind of position, as I think you and I never expected to be elected in the positions we were in. So I thought that humanized him. You know, Sherry, the, there are so many um, so many sectors, so many programs in Ontario that have been so badly underfunded for so many years that it's, you know, it's tough. It's a challenge to be able to catch up, but we need to catch up. We've had the lowest pandemic spending of any province in terms of program spending. Uh, we're behind many other provinces. We, we have the lowest spending on uh, hospitals and you know we get more money Let's talk about post-secondary education we get more money from foreign students than we do from the government of Ontario so uh, even before the pandemic we had so many problems and not to mention the lack of child care the terrible situation of home care and long-term care so serious challenges and these fault lines of course have been dramatically exposed during the pandemic um, and the the workplace fault lines around the insecurity and carity of so many people who keep our lives going, literally. So um, the government started already from not a great place. They, they did spend, I mean, they are spending. The problem is when you factor in population growth, you factor in inflation, uh, we're still falling further and further behind. So, you know, you can talk about hundreds of millions of dollars, you can talk about billions of dollars, I think people's eyes kind of go squirrely, it doesn't mean that much. But I think the bottom line is, we're not catching up enough. And people say, well, where will the money come from? Something I didn't get to raise on CP24 yesterday is, there are some people who are doing incredibly well, who have really profited during this pandemic. And I don't think there would be any debate about those people paying just a little bit more to help others out in our society. So I think, you know, not that we are poor collectively as a society, but our public systems are becoming more and more impoverished. I mean, for parents who are kind of hanging on by their fingernails, hoping for a safe return to school or the opportunity to have their kids in affordable childcare. Frankly, Sherry, I don't think there was much there for them. I, I was very disappointed. There was nothing there for workers who can't afford to take time off to get tested or to get the vaccine. Um, and I, I, I just think that's such a mistake. We're into the third wave. The numbers are up again today. And it should be all hands on deck. The first job is to keep everybody safe throughout till we can get through this pandemic. Uh, one of the items that they mentioned was this, you know, for four hundred or so dollars per per for parents. Um, and it it's interesting that it roughly works out to about the cuts they've made to public education. It's about one point six billion. So basically, uh, uh, and you know, I tweeted and others tweeted about this, but. But it's, it's, I mean, it's 
a move to privatization is what it is. I mean, they've been underfunding the public school system, and I'm not I'm talking um, you know uh, secondary and elementary here, uh, but they've been and obviously you just mentioned post secondary, but they've been underfunding it for so long, uh, and the buildings are falling apart as we know. Ventilation class size are way too big for COVID, and it's exploding in the schools, um, and they're just beginning to be noticed that it is on mainstream media. Um, but, uh, but with this, th there's really the signal now. So parents with means, you know, uh, will not, you know, be happy about online learning being permanent. They will not be happy about, uh, you know, a few dollars in the mail. Um, what they will see is the crumbling infrastructure and they'll take their kids out. And I think that's the real plan, um, you know, as we're moving to the American style of people with means send their children to private schools and people with, without send their kids to public school. Um, I'm interested, and one of the comments you made too that I, I want to highlight is about evictions during COVID because that's something that uh, certainly in our neighborhood um, is really felt. We have a lot of renters um, and this should not be happening. And there were some, you know, sounds from the government about that as well as, you know, you know, paid sick days, which we don't have either. But maybe say something about the ev evictions that are happening during COVID. Um, well, you know, it, there was, uh, it's illogical to put someone out of their house when you're telling everyone to stay home. So um, the, the, you know, activist organizations like ACORN and others, tenant organizations have been uh, staging rent strikes and, and protests to get the attention of the public and the government. And they did make some moves that almost sounded like they were going to... Uh, to to reduce the likelihood of evictions, but if you drill down into the details, it's not it's not bad at all, and people are still getting evicted. And you know, if you look, we're we're a city with a, a large number of renters, and that's going to continue because housing is just uh, sky high in terms of cost. Um, but increasingly it is, you know, it's not somebody renting out a little extra room in their house. There's some of that, but it is large corporations, numbered companies in many cases that own blocks of apartment buildings. And they're just, you know, making decisions based on what their shareholders want, which is more returns. So if somebody is out of work and not able to pay the rent, um, that's a problem for shareholders. So get them out of the building. And uh, unfortunately, that's what has been happening. And again, these are some of the same people that are ensuring that we get food in our grocery stores, that seniors are cared for, that we get health care when we need it. it it's so counterintuitive. And you know the stratification that we see taking place right now, Sherry, you mentioned about parents taking their kids out of schools. I mean, this is this old 40-year-old neoliberal notion that somehow the private sector does everything better. Well, clearly that's not true. You know, if you look back even early in the neoliberal era in Canada, they poisoned people in Walkerton when the water supply was, was uh, uncared for. Um, they're costing people a fortune with a private highway, uh, 407. Um, uh, we see in long-term care homes where disproportionately in private homes, people die more, they get sick more. So, you know, there are things that need to be in the public 
sphere, good social programs, education, health, um, essential services. Um, but there are certain conditions that people need to have. They need to have a high minimum wage so they can live in an expensive city. They need to have security of housing. They need to have security in the workplace. Something that was drawn to my attention yesterday were the cuts to the Ministry of Labor budget, $70 million, at a time when some of the biggest outbreaks are in warehouses, supermarkets, food processing. How does this make any sense? Already, there's not enough inspections. And when they do inspect, they're not issuing fines. So, you know, that's what you get when you get an old-fashioned conservative government. And frankly, the liberals talked a good line. They didn't do a whole lot more. Um, I, I just think, uh, you know, as, as a province, the wealthiest, biggest province in the country, um, we should just low, we, we should stop lowering our expectations. We should raise our expectations and just demand more from all of our governments. And when they say, how are we going to pay for it? You know, the Westons and the, um, I don't know who all else, the, the, certainly the Amazons of the world, you know, I, I'd go where banks, I, I, I'd go where the money is. <laughs> That's how I pay for it. <laughs> Absolutely. Speaking to Peggy Nash about, you know, all things political um, and, of course, the Ontario budget that just came out as well here on the Radical Reverend Show. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's quite shocking. Now, you're you have a labor background. You're a labor person. You know unions better than anyone. And you mentioned Amazon. So there's that huge outbreak at their warehouse. There have been outbreaks at these. And, and you know, they make the news sometimes if they're immense, but they don't always make the news. And you're right. I mean, you know, just go to your grocery store and watch people risking their lives for you just so you can eat. Um, what you know, what's happening in that in in those sectors in terms of one would think this would be a great opportunity for number one increased unionization, but also um, highlighting exactly what's wrong when you don't have a union. But um, but but also um, you know. Uh, I've heard certainly from teachers and others in the in the education sector, you know, this fear of speaking out lest you lose your job or less management, you know, moves you to some less desirable job or something. So there's a lot of fear out there, especially during COVID, that you'll lose your your position, period. Um, what do, you know, what are the responses of the unions? Um, for example, you know, people have talked about a general strike. Um, why is why is that not happening? So maybe talk about unionization in the era of COVID. Yeah, well, you've raised a lot of issues there. I mean, something that's very exciting is in the southern U.S. right now. There is a massive organizing drive going on at Amazon. And it, it seems to be catching fire. And the, you know, even, even Joe Biden spoke out uh, about the importance of having a union and workers' right to have a union. Um, and it's fascinating what Amazon is doing, you know, the intimidation, the threats, the, the tactics they're using to try to dissuade their workers from joining a union. Um, here, uh, I think there have been some tentative efforts. There are, you know, some interesting organizations outside of the official labor movement. There's a warehouse workers organization in Brampton. 
which uh, is is very active. Um, there was the whole 15 and Fairness campaign, which was really uh, about grassroots organizing. And the official labor movement was part of it, but they weren't kind of the the instigators of it. So I think I think that's clear. You know, we saw the Fudora campaign, which um, I mean, I went down to the labor board and sat with those people that. So interesting, um, people who who desperately wanted a union, bike couriers, car couriers, um, articulate, who knew why they wanted a union. You know, you give them a megaphone and they gave great speeches and they won at the labor board. They won the right to at least apply for a union. And over 90 percent of them voted in favor. And what did Fedora do? Well, they closed up shop and they left the province. Uh, but people are still getting food delivered. There's lots of other couriers. So there is still organizing taking place. And there is warehouse organizing taking place. I'm just not sure how advanced it is. You know, but Sherry, you raise a, a good point that the employers have too much power right now because uh, if workers are so, of course, who wouldn't want a union? You know, you yes, you pay dues, but they're tax deductible. Um, you you get someone to represent you to file a grievance. You get someone to represent you to negotiate how much money you make and what benefits you get. You have the power of many when you're dealing with a large corporation. Who wouldn't want that? But it says something when the laws are so skewed in favor of business that the average person feels that it's it they can't do it it's it's hopeless that they're not going to be successful i think there's a real mood change i think a lot of young people are saying no we need a union and maybe it doesn't look like the kind of unions our parents had maybe it's a different kind of union you know maybe it's a more grassroots union uh, i think there's some good unions we have today but i think there's a generational change happening and a lot of young people are saying, no, we just, just like our parents and grandparents, we want to create an organization that reflects us. And I think, you know, I, I really, any, any opportunity to support that, I will do it because I think it's desperately needed. It's interesting that the Fedora organization, um, uh, one of the one of the leaders of that is a member of my congregation. Actually, shout out to, oh. to Thomas McKechnie, and he's been on the show as well, talking about exactly you know how they won that fight, which was so exciting. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean the gig economy, of course, and we've seen you know workers in the gig economy organize in the states as well, which is amazing. Sherry, you had asked me about a general strike. I don't want to duck that question. I, I think it's a tough one because um, you can't strike for somebody else. You know, if somebody is taking on a fight, you can fight with them. So let's say Amazon workers across the GTA organized and they were in a fight with Amazon and they decided to strike. I think you can have support actions. They're illegal. I mean, they're illegal. Unions can be fined, uh, huge fines for doing that, um, which is one of the reasons why they, they don't happen. <laughs> uh, huge penalties for them. I mean, they can destroy a union if they make the fines big enough. 
Um, but, you know, if everybody in the city walked off the job, they'd have a hard time. Obviously, the city wouldn't function. But it's difficult. You know, if you or I go to a hospital tonight, you really hope that people are working there. You know, if if we have to put food on the table, you you know, so it's um, it's it's challenging for many people. And then the reality is most people in the private sector do not have the the right of union representation. And so uh, for them to walk off the job, they can be instantly fired. So it's it is challenging. I go back to this notion that uh, the pendulum has shifted so far in favor of employers. But, you know, ha- having said all of that, in the 1940s, strikes were not even legal. And we had the highest level of strikes in the history of the country. So, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm getting, you know, super radical in my old age. But I guess if you wait for the people who are oppressing you to give you the right to fight back, you're probably never going to have it. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking to Peggy Nash, uh, uh, this, this, you know, this, this section of the uh, Radical Reverend show, and I, I do advise, do stay tuned to hear um, about uh, education in the, in the elementary and secondary panel and what's happening there. But uh, just, uh, we just have a minute or two left, Peggy, um, just to, just to, to sum up, um, uh, you're now in post-secondary education. Um, what needs to happen there? Well, you know, it has been underfunded significantly uh, for for many years, and and increasingly, universities are relying on foreign students um, because of the differential in tuition. And you know, I mean, I, I universities that. Um, you know they've got a function, right? Like they've got they've got budgets, they've got people they need to pay. They have to function. So if they're not getting money uh, from the government, they I mean they have uh, the only other sources are raising tuition, and I think they've been it's already been raised so dramatically. Um, foreign students, or uh, they they get donations for capital spending. Um, and then grants for for research and and some programs. So they have limited resources. It's not like they can go to you know a GoFundMe site uh, to to fund the university. These are big big organizations, but they are really running into uh, to cost problems. And for foreign students, I mean, I I know I've I've uh, you know, I, I've seen it just now during COVID where students are are coming online to classes, but they're in the Middle East or they're in India or they're in China and they are signing in and they're still paying tuition. So it's 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 pretty it's it's hard, you know, it's hard all round. Like my grandkids are five and seven. They're you know five years old. How do you do? you know, senior kindergarten online, like it's, it's so sad. And now they're home again, because they're of a COVID outbreak in Mississauga. And my kids are kind of my daughter in law, my son are, 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 they're just going crazy, like it's just impossible. And it's for university students, it's so hard, like some people can function online. Some people like to stay home and they're fine online. 
And other people, it's just, it's heartbreaking. They, they can't function. So, I mean, here's hoping our governments pull up their socks. We do everything we need to, to kill this virus and we all get vaccinated soon. And we get a government that stops these false economies and goes where the money is and invests where the people are. <laughs> Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much, Peggy Nash. Uh, stay tuned for the next guest on The Radical Reverend Show. Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show, everyone. Uh, listeners, we love you. Uh, whether you're hearing this on CIUT 89.5 FM on the radio, uh, or if you're hearing on podcast, iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, wherever you hear us. And we'd love to hear from you, by the way. So please uh, keep your comments coming. Um, your host, Sherry DeNovo here. And we're continuing the theme we started last week, and that is on schools and what's happening in schools. I know we did a series on long-term care and uh, the horrific consequences there of COVID, but now we're seeing it in schools, and that's what we want to focus on. And to, to help me do that, um, my guest today is Romana Siddiqui. Thank you for being on the Radical Reverend Show. And Romana's here because she's part of Ontario Parent Action Network, um, a phenomenal organization that's uh, very active on Twitter, and that's where I know them from, and uh, very good about getting information out about COVID stats in schools, what's happening in schools, and uh, thank you for that. It's a, a great service to not just me, but to all the families across Ontario. So let's start by talking about the network itself. How did it start and how did you get involved in it? Sure. So um, OPAN started a couple of years ago. It was um, with the Ford government when it, it came to power and the austerity measures and sort of the idea that there were going to be a lot of cuts to uh, to our infrastructure, so particularly education. Um, so it started from Toronto, um, a group of parents at um, from school council, and it sort of expanded from one school council to a couple of other school councils and it built. So this is uh, back in 2018. Um, and and um, really, it's been a grassroots movement. Um, with the labor situation, prior to the pandemic, there was a lot of organizing around um, protecting our public education system from being dismantled, from being privatized, from um, all sorts of uh, budget cuts and, and changes that were being introduced. And there was um, several walk-ins, walk-outs um, across the province. And that was um, really the, the roots and the origins of how it started. And then we've just with time sort of evolved, people have come and gone. Um, it's, it's a very um, organic kind of organization. And so really it's, um, it's about empowering parents and caregivers um, to really step into advocating for, for our communities. Now in the context of COVID, there's been a lot of organizing around pushing back um, narratives that the Ford government puts forward in terms of how COVID uh, transmission is affecting um, 
is being affected in schools and sort of the um, risk factors and how to mitigate them. So we had organized um, Ford's COVID classroom back in August um, in Queens Park. We had had the safe September, um, a few like Twitter storms and we've had phone zaps, um, also campaigns. We've had all kinds of different um, activities that we've been trying to organize and work really at that grassroots level to get the parent voice out. So we're talking about the Ontario Parent Action Network with uh, Romana. And Romana, how did you get involved? What what got you involved in the network? So I am from Peel, um, and I started actually just from school council, my children's school council. And just because of the type of parent I am, I joined a, a few Facebook groups. One thing sort of led to another, and I started seeing some posts. They just started sort of showing up in some of the face, the school council Facebook groups that I had joined. Um, from the Ontario Parent Action Network and also from Ontario Families for Public Education. Um, so I, I was intrigued and I started following along and um, then I became more involved with one of the chapters in Peel. And um, I think as naturally happens when you become interested and involved in something, you 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 find like-minded people. And so you naturally sort of come together. So I um, really, since last year, January, so it's just been over a year, about uh, 14 months that I've been sort of more actively involved. And I was asked to join at a press conference, um, again, just before the labor situation. So this was back in January. And I was one of five panelists that spoke. And then um, since then, I've just, as time permits, um, I've been involved. And, and um, so that was really um, how it happened for me. And in Peel, I'm not the only parent, but I'm sort of one of the more, um, I, I guess, active, like vocally active ones. There's lots and lots, obviously, parents that have these concerns, but that was, that was sort of how I became involved. And obviously you're a parent. So how old are your children, may I ask? What what grades are they in? So I have three kids. My oldest, he's, um, he's in the uh, Catholic board and he's in grade 11, 16 years old. Um, and actually, so uh, we're a designated board here in Peel. And he, for the third quadmester, he's now switched to virtual. Um, so quadmester one and two, he was in class um, in person. And now with the rising number and the variance of concern, he's switched. So he's just fully at home. My um, other two children, so when the youngest is in grade six, he's in French immersion. And um, my, our middle child, she's in grade eight. Um, and those two go to the same school. They're in the public board and they both are in class. Um, but... <laughs> Even just today, like every day this week, I've been sort of chatting with my husband. Oh, should we send them? Like, what you know, sort of double checking. Um, it's been a hard decision, um, and we've been sort of taking it day by day. But yeah, so I have three. Uh, and do you work outside the home? Um, three children—that's a lot of children. <laughs> yeah. So um, actually, I am a stay-at-home mom. I, I do. My husband. Um, is a physician here in Mississauga. So I do do some work with him in terms of just administrative clerical things to, to help with his paperwork. Um, but mostly I, I've been a stay-at-home mom. Um, but I'm actually busier than I have been in many years this past year. Um, partly because my children are a little bit older. You know, they're, they're past that 
stage where um, every need is so dependent on a, on a caregiver. So um, their needs have just sort of changed. They still obviously are relying on me for a lot, but in a different capacity. So I've actually become a lot busier in some ways uh, the, the past year and a half, which sounds funny because for a lot of people, things have sort of quieted down. And um, But I think it's just because there is so much to organize about and to advocate and sort of be active about and protest against and to really voice our concerns about. So it's interesting in an ironic way that I've become busier um, because there is so much to be busy about in that context right now. Uh, speaking to Romana um, uh, from Ontario Parent Action Network and talking about of course, our education system in Peel, the area you're in, has been particularly hard hit. Um, I mean, I've been just amplifying the voices of uh, teachers, but also education staff of various sorts and parents um, and some kids about what's going on. And it's not it's not lovely. Um, we've been hearing from the Ministry of, Educa of Education, as you know, because you're active in, in the field that oh, all our schools are safe, but that's in fact not the case, clearly, um, and demonstrably, especially in Peel. Um, so, so what do you make of this disconnect? You know, you're hearing, you know, like Minister Lecce will be getting on mainstream news and talking about how, and even some public health units about how safe everything is. And yet we know that classrooms are bigger than 15 kids. We know that some teachers and others are bringing in their own filters, HEPA filters, that the ventilation is an issue. We know, you know, now the stories of teachers that have to go and eat outside and kids who are unmasked and eating on masks and lunches. So from your perspective, I mean, these are all, you know, things that we know, but there seems to be this huge disconnect between what we know, talking to people on the ground, and then what we see um, as presented to us as news. Talk about that a bit. So it's been um, interesting in a perplexing sort of way. Um, I'm kind of used to the government making a certain type of a statement and the reality being a little different and, or a lot different. <laughs> and um, depending on how things sort of evolve within a day or two days or you know, shortly thereafter, there's a bit of a pivot or a bit of a walk back. So although I understand that Minister Lecce, you know, just in the past couple of days has said, no, schools are going to be staying open. There's no plans to sort of close them. I have to say, I mean, I don't have, I can't see into the future, but just based on uh, common sense and based on what numbers are telling us and what mathematical um, modeling has been telling us, I personally fully expect that we, we will be having a third shutdown of, of schools in Peel. Um, I feel that it's more of a matter of when, not if. Um, in the Catholic board, we're seeing a lot more cases right now. Um, in the public board, there are still cases. So, so as I mentioned, I've, my oldest one, he's um, in the Catholic board. I've had three email notifications just this week alone from his school. Now he's virtual though. So, I mean, I'm still getting the emails, but um, I'm, it, the concern is a little different because he is at home. With my younger two, we've had two emails this week. And there's actually um, my daughter's teacher. She's in one of the photos that's been going around on Twitter of the, of the teacher sitting outside in the cold eating. Um, that, that was my, my daughter's teacher. 
Um, so it is of concern and you're hearing like of the goggling and the mask, the plastic masking. Um, there's been emails to staff to explain about, you know, that they can drink water obviously in, in, in the school, but to be having their lunches, either being alone in a room or as you said, outside in cars. So the, all of these reports and all of these um, uh, outcomes and sort of the way things are evolving, that's very concerning, of course. And then you are, you are hearing about the asymptomatic testing hub. So every weekend um, the, in different locations, it does change from weekend to weekend for different hours. Uh, some of them are both Saturday and Sunday, some are just one day. There is the asymptomatic testing being done um, by both the Catholic and public board. And of course it's coordinated by Peel Public Health. So we've actually, as a family, we've gone once. Um, and I had been planning to go last weekend a second time because I think they've done this now for about five weekends. So I was just figuring, okay, might be a bit much to go every week, but we should maybe go every second or third week. So we are we were planning to go again. Um, and it was um, fairly quick, but it was um, kind of empty. Like there weren't that many people there. And I was... A little disappointed about that, but I also understand because it's not during school hours. It's not as, I mean, parents, families have to kind of go out of their way to engage in that and to take advantage of it. But I do feel that that's really important because with these variants of concern, um, we know that there's, I mean, it, it, it stands to reason there, there's going to be asymptomatic cases. And it's, very concerning that we would be waiting to find out about them until there's um, a snowballed effect of, of infections in schools. And there's no magic barrier, right? Like it's not like the air changes or there's an invisible force field as soon as you are in a school. And you're, I mean, obviously you, you, you get that when you understand that educators are having all of, just in the past week, are having all of these new regulations and guidelines. So, I mean, there is an understanding of that. So there's this, this, there's this weird disconnect that somehow you think that those transmissions, you're on the one hand sort of acknowledging that, but on the other hand, you're denying that there's transmission in schools and that there's really not that much to be concerned about. So it's just um, a weird situation to be in. Nobody wants to have to shut schools down unless it's necessary, but that's the concern that 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 marker of what's necessary. And if you're being short-sighted and if you're doing this for political gain or just for expediency, um, that's the wrong approach to take. It will, we know that, that things are projected to get a lot worse. So why are we not taking the measures to at the adequate measures to properly and preventively protect our community. Even the um, vaccine rollout, it's not been as, as robust as I, I personally would have liked. Um, my parents are, um, they're both under 80, but my, my mom is uh, close to 70 and my father is 73. And I mean, we're, we're really waiting. I haven't, we haven't been able to get them vaccinated. My husband, again, because he's a healthcare worker, he has been, but he's the only one in our extended family. And, um, you know, we have in our family, um, three generations under like the same roof. So it is a big concern and we're not unique. I mean, that's a common trend in Peel families. So. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking to um, uh, Romana and uh, speaking about the Ontario Parent Action Network and also what it's like to be a parent of, of kids in the school system now in Peel, which has been particularly hard hit, and the schools there have been particularly hard hit. Um, and yeah, I mean, we, we know this from international studies of schools. I mean, they were in part responsible for the second wave. Um, so now we are going into a third wave. And uh, I think there was one day last week that... Uh, we saw 34% of the new cases were school-related. Uh, I mean, this is shocking and clearly an indication that something is not right, you know, in our school system. Um, and we know what's not right. I mean, your organization has been really front and center in putting forward demands, things like 15 maximum in a classroom, ventilation systems, etc., um, and adequate testing. And And you're right. I mean, this idea that you could expect you know, parents, families on their kind of, you know, weekends to show up at testing centers um, when many people work and, you know, this should be done in school. I mean, that's where it makes the most sense. Um, So, I mean, just kind of looking ahead now, I know that what's happening in Peel is school after school are closing. It's not just in Peel, but right across the province. We've seen huge numbers of schools up north, you know, close and um, and this is ongoing. Um, and of course, canceling March break didn't didn't help. Um, uh, and and we're also seeing a lot of very frightened staff and and teachers. Uh, last week on this show, we had uh, Fred Hahn, who's the head of QP, um, Ontario's largest union and largest public sector union, um, with a lot fifty five thousand education workers. I mean, they're not teachers, but they're the the secretaries and the lunchroom supervisors and the speech therapists and all those other people that aren't teachers. Um, and just people being frightened, like the staff are frightened. And I, I just can't imagine. I mean, we all, like, I've, you know, my kids are grown up, but I mean, you know, little kids are little kids. I mean, they're going to do what kids do. They don't always follow instruction. They have to eat with their masks off uh, in lunchrooms. They play together in, in schoolyards. And we've all seen what schoolyards can look like. You know, it's kind of can, can be rough and tumble and masks aren't a part of that. Um, and, um, so asymptomatic testing is important, but, but more important is that, you know, to date, you know, touch wood, um, you know, we're not seeing a lot of cases in children in Ontario, but we have in other jurisdictions and certainly they can carry at home to people like your parents, Ramana, and, uh, who are much more susceptible. So this is an ongoing problem. Um, what do you think? I mean, I've got my own theories about why, the government seems just committed to this line, and not just them, some public health units too, but of that schools are safe. I mean, just like a mantra that they keep repeating over and over and over again, like we're going to believe it. I mean, what do you think's behind that? Quite honestly, um, I mean, their positioning or their um, approach really predates COVID. Um, a lot of it has to do with money and um, this underlying push, I believe, towards privatizing and dismantling our public education system. And in some ways, COVID has um, enabled and emboldened that a little bit more. Um, but I, I I think at the at the end of the day, the bottom line is about where they're getting their funding from and about this idea of big C capitalism um, and really privatization, um, figuring out a way to monetize the education system. And in the end, the communities that are already at most risk, they are the ones who 
are going to be even more worse off ultimately. Um, families, regardless of whether it's COVID or, or even outside of predating COVID, um, the steps that were being taken towards privatizing, um, you know, for example, the, the e-learning modules that they were talking about, regardless, families that are um, more privileged um, in, in many ways, right? Whether we we're talking about just social location, whether we're talking about economics, whether we're talking about skin color, et cetera, like all the different factors, um, those families will still be able to support their children through um, getting a fulsome educational experience, whether it's tutors, whether it's like whatever extra supports, technology, devices, et cetera. The families that, are, that have always been at more risk are going to be more worse off. And we know this. So it's frustrating. It makes me angry. It makes a lot of people concerned and angry that those that should be the most protected are going to suffer even worse. And it's, at least in Peel, I have to say that there's a, some complicating factors because there has been a lot of concern about um, anti-Black racism in our public board. Um, so there's a funny interplay. I, I mean, funny is not the right word. Um, it's an interesting dynamic that the Minister of Education did come in. He did remove the um, previous Director of Education. He has placed a supervisor, he's placed an interim director. There's been a lot of work being done in our public board towards dismantling anti-Black racism, um, towards having a, a more anti-oppressive lens. Those are all wonderful things, but at the same time, um, that same ministry that's come in and does, and I have to give them credit, they have done some great work in that regard. We're also the same community that has the highest risk in terms of COVID and who have had um, frontline workers and, um, you know, in Brampton, there's just the people that prop up the economy and the, the food supply chain, et cetera. We've had pockets of people that have suffered the most in terms of uh, COVID infection rates and in terms of not having income supports and in terms of not having paid sick leave. So it's, it's, um, it's quite a contrast and it's a, a bizarre situation to reconcile yourself to that on the one hand, it's the same, it's the same um, organization that's been of some help and some support for sure. They have absolutely done some good, but at the same time, we can't, we can't not be critical because it, that dismantling is being done by the same institution, by the same people. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, um, it's hurtful. It's harmful. And it's upsetting. So yeah, I mean, this is a pandemic and people are dying. I mean, at the end of the day, um, it's life and death, truly. Um, you were when you were speaking about the ministry, I was thinking you we have a minister of education who is a graduate uh, from a private school and his parliamentary assistant who is homeschooled oh. <laughs> overseeing a public system, whether Catholic or, or public. Um, and, and so very, you know, very different experiences. 
And I, and I have to say, um, here speaking to Ontario Parent Action Network and Romana um, about her experiences as parent and activist, uh, but I mean, it's it's so disheartening when we see the one school that's that's not even closed, really, but that's featured on the news as Upper Canada College after weeks and weeks of other schools with multiple outbreaks and cases not being given the light of day and not being covered. And finally, um, I was happy to kind of assist uh, really one of the reporters of CP24 to like get St. Uh, Sophia up there, you know, um, one of the worst hit uh, schools. But I mean, they're one among many, as you know. And so finally, maybe the, you know, this, the tide is turning and they're going to start covering this, not as um, what we've been hearing. Oh, it's all community transmission, whatever that means. Um, uh, so there's some magic about schools. But um, yeah, I mean, this is an ongoing issue and it's a problem. Um, we just have a couple of minutes left. I want to hear about the future for Ontario Parent Action Network. What, um, how can people support you and what's coming up that we should know about? Right now, the big concern is the budget for next year is going to be coming out. And um, so there's a website that we have um, set up and we are asking people if it just takes 10 seconds, if you can... Um, Come to the website, you know, enter in your information, a letter will automatically be sent to your MPP. There's even a template that you can um, share a copy of a version of that letter to your school council, because it's really important that right now, as much as possible, we get the parent voice out um, to express concerns about funding for September. $1.6 million in uh, pandemic funding was provided for this current school year, uh, 2021. That money, um, it, it wasn't fully given by the provincial government. Like there's a whole breakdown about that, but that money is not being offered for this coming up September school year of 2021-2022. And I don't understand how it's possible that COVID's not over. How are, how are our schools going to be able to operate without that sort of extra support funding. So it's really important that budget will be released shortly. Um, and school boards will have to, they will have to make very hard choices and de decisions. There will be cuts in terms of staff members. And it's not always all teachers, as you mentioned earlier before, other support staff. So um, that's gonna have a devastating effect in September and we, you know, this is something that's going to be happening in six months. We have to advocate for that now. Uh, you can find uh, the website and you can find the petition, the letter and all of that. Um, uh, just follow Ontario Parent Action Network and uh, and the information will be on their site on Twitter um, or other wherever you get your social media. So, so do uh, get active around that. And thank you very much for being on the Radical Reverend Show, Romana. Um, and, uh, and do keep safe. Thank you. You too. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.